Pinkers, and welcome to episode 75 of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, and today's show should be a good one. Mike Casimir and I have both been reviewing mountain bikes and gear on Pink Bike for years now, and there have been countless times when we've looked at each other and said, what the hell was this company thinking? Sometimes it might be about a questionable spec choice or maybe a questionable design decision, or maybe we're wondering why they even made the product in the first place. Or maybe it's the ridiculous packaging, the marketing they did, or we're wondering why the heck they signed so-and-so to ride their bikes anyway. So sure, Casimir and I have zero engineering experience, background, and skills, and neither of us have done any marketing, but we're not going to let that stop us today. And I would argue that us lacking on those two fronts could give us a much-needed perspective that most brands don't have. I bet they probably don't want it either, but I'm still trying to convince Casimir to start our new consulting firm, Mike Bike. I'm still working on the name, everybody, so put those suggestions down below in the comments, and don't forget that it needs to make us sound like we know what we're talking about. So if you got something better than Mike Bike, put it down there. Anyway, the point is, we've often joked about how some of these brands should really be asking our advice before wasting money and resources on dumb things. So that's what today's podcast is all about. Episode 75, Things That Mountain Bike Brands Waste Money On. Now, I have my Mike Bike business partner here, of course. Casimir, I know we need to talk about bikes at some point on this show, but I want to ask you, what's the last non-bike thing that you feel like you wasted money on? I know you're pretty responsible. So is there is there something you bought recently and you're like, ugh, damn it. No, I'm pretty good. Yeah, you're right. I'm responsible. I did buy a stand-up paddleboard, but it's been a million degrees, so it's kind of fun. And I got a wetsuit, so I can like float around and look at starfish. So I don't know. They're not wastes yet, but that is money that's not bike-related. So it always feels like I'm wasting it when I when it doesn't go to bikes. I don't know why. Are we at are we at the point now where you go stand-up paddleboarding instead of riding? Are you ocean sweeping? No, I just go. I don't know how usually. I feel about this. Sometimes, maybe I take a day. Oceans, yeah, I go ocean sweeping. They inflate. They like fold down into a backpack so you can like hike in. And you can catch crabs too out from the ocean, not the other way. Like you just <laughs> put your crab pot on and then drop it and then go paddle around and then go pick it up and then you get crabs. So you're saving money because you get dinner at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I think Dungeness crab is super expensive, but it's like basically free if you go. So I, I, yeah, it's not a waste, but this is a different, a non-bike related purchase I made recently that was more money than I like to spend usually. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some good news for you, Kaz. At Mike Bike, our consulting firm, I've upgraded you from unpaid intern to paid intern. Ooh, nice. Yeah. So that's that's good news. <laughs> cool. I can buy some fancy flippers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, because this is definitely a topic where I could easily say something completely out to lunch and piss off entire companies, I also have my boss on the show to make sure that only happens a few times today. Brian Park, do you think Casimir and I's Mike Bike consulting firm will be successful? And who should our first customer be, and why is it Spank? <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, they make amazing products, yeah. but... Good luck. Yeah. That's it. Spank, <laughs> give, give us me a, a shout. <laughs> Brian, do you think do you think Mike Bike's going to be successful, or do you think I'm going to run it into the ground? Uh, I think both of those things could be true. <laughs> so, the spanner to my wrench, James Smurthwaite, isn't here today to read the news, but Sarah Moore is here instead to balance out the salt from Kazar and I moaning for the next hour. But before we get to that, Sarah, what is a mountain bike piece of gear you know isn't going to help you in any way? So it could be argued that it's a waste of money, but that you still want to buy. Uh, so people are going to absolutely hate this. I got the Code RSC brakes with the rainbow bolts, and I also got rainbow bolts to mount my shock on my bike. So really, really improves my ride quality when you look down and you see the pretty bolts. <laughs> you are dead to me. <laughs> I know. Sarah? I also like read the poll where people were like, we hate oil slick everything. I'm like, I love oil slick bolts. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sarah, have I have definitely... I have definitely spent too much money on aftermarket bolts from Amazon and other places. So yeah, I feel you on that one. They weren't oil slick though, were they? (laughs) No, they were titanium and aluminum. The rainbow ones are tie, aren't they? On the code? so. Yeah, so you got both. 
I win. And Sarah's just going for the colors, but I think yeah. this might be tied. I'd have to double check. But... <laughs> All right, Sarah, can you tell us what's going on in the news today? I can. So let's start with the new 2022 Pivot Firebird. This is the fifth generation of the Firebird, the first being released back in 2008. The new Carbon Firebird has received the usual geometry changes. The head angle is a degree slacker, the C-tube angle is two degrees steeper, and the chainstay lengths now vary depending on the frame size. The reach has also grown by around 14 millimeters per size, and the rear travel has been increased to 165 millimeters. Kaz, you spent some time on this enduro sled. Tell the people what they really want to know. How does it climb? <laughs> it climbs like a bird. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about just like overall your ride impressions on this one? Yeah. Like they're, they're, they build it as a race bike, you know, which is one of those words that gets tossed around a lot. Like, look, we make a race bike and what, you know, what that means is up for debate, but it does feel nice and fast. It does climb well. Um, but also going downhill, you know, it's got that coil shock on it on the version I have. And, uh, so yeah, I've been impressed with it so far. It does feel a little longer potentially than i would like as far as like overall fit goes they made the reach 488 millimeters on this one and it's like teetering on the brink of maybe being a little bit too big for me but i think in the bike park it's going to feel really good and on the higher speed trails so kaz are you the kind of rider who would prefer dw link or high pivot bike uh that's a hard question i think i'm still i really like high pivot bikes and i'm riding i still have another new one that i'm riding now and like in the rough oh, stuff, there's, tell us, what is it? It's a secret, secret high pivot oh, bike. I yeah. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> um, I don't, it's so hard to choose. I feel like you can make, like I can get along with pretty much any suspension design. I'm not one of those people that thinks that DW link link is the most magical thing ever. And you can only ride DW link or everything else is subpar because there are super fans out there for that. But, um, yeah, as far as like in, in rough stuff, I think the high pivot does tend to have a little bit of an advantage as far as like the feel at your feet. But then when you go to sprint or pedal, sometimes they're a little different. But yeah, we'll see. Probably compare this against something. Would you say that this bike might feel more well-rounded than a high pivot enduro bike because of the DW link? Or is that maybe reaching a bit? This is Levy's quest to turn every bike into a light trail bike. <laughs> yeah i know exactly so Levy, so this bike has a 64 head angle a coil shock and it's long so not really gonna be your ideal all-around trail bike but yeah, yeah. i still kind of think they could have made it slacker even to make it less well-rounded it's almost too well-rounded because it it just doesn't feel uh, it's hard to put in words i gotta ride it some more but it, i think it could go slacker because it has two settings it has, this is one of those bikes that has a high and a low geometry switch so you can have 64 degrees or 64.6 but in my mind i want it to be 64 and then like 63.5 which seems silly and i know they're little numbers they don't make a huge difference but like why would i steepen this bike up when i have all that travel and it's already designed for racing but yeah we'll dig in more but either way it's a good evolution of the bike i think like it does they have the vertical shock now so if it's a water bottle so that's really the important thing right yeah water bottle. but yeah anyways i've got like yeah i have probably five rods on it so i'll get a bunch more and do a long-term review We've also got a new bike from GT this week, the 2022 GT Force Carbon. Like Pivot, GT has had this bike under some of their racers this season, so we've seen more than a few spy shots of it. But now we finally have all the details and a first ride from Henry Quinney. It's got 29er wheels, 160 millimeters of travel, and a 63.5 degree head tube angle. The most notable differences are that it now has an idler and 10 millimeters of chainstay adjustment. It costs between $3,800 US and $6,000 US which sounds pretty reasonable compared to that Pivot Firebird starting price of $6,000. What do you guys think of this one? Yeah, another high pivot bike. So they're on, <laughs> on point for the trend. If you're playing the Enduro bike bingo, you can get that, check that one off. Um, I'll talk about the price for a little bit before talking about the bike itself. It was pretty funny, that Pivot article, the comments went insane because the price of the highest end one is 13000 something dollars. Um, and everybody just fixated on that as if you could only, you had to buy the most expensive one or that. Well, that's what they, existed, they force you to. Which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah you can't there's no other options <laughs> and then and and everybody was comparing it to all the other normal things you compare it to but the thirteen thousand dollar one has live valve which is an expensive electronic Ooh. suspension system so that adds like an extra grand to the bike at least and then we combine that with electronic shifting and all that you get a thirteen thousand dollar bike Kaz, wait there's live valve on the most expensive firebird that has 165 mils of travel mm -hmm. yeah i'm surprised yeah. That they would it was in my article. I wrote about it. Yeah, I didn't and, read it. <laughs> I know. There's actually a little podcast that uh, 
Chris uh, Kokalis from Pivot did with Jens, who's, I think he's working for uh, Pivot now as well, Jens Stout. Mm-hmm. So they kind of just chatted about that and they talk about the live valve development. And basically it sounds like what they've done with this bike is make it so that in the neutral position, it's like firm, but not fully locked out. It's like, you know, feels like more efficient trail bike, probably what you'd like. And then in the open position, it's like extra gushy, like super plush and just a tune that you wouldn't normally have, be able to run on a bike because it would make it, um, the climbing would be like just a, a bobbing mess. So mm-hmm. it sounds well, like they, they tried different things. It's interesting. Yeah. But that price is, I, I don't, yeah not what i would expect on that bike but yeah i also think the point is that it's not pivot isn't setting a super high price just to set a super high price on their frame which is the only thing they really control the price of um it's they've hung really expensive parts off of it now whether you know i'm sure that the ride difference between the six thousand dollar one and the thirteen thousand dollar one is not seven thousand dollars worth but interesting yeah but anyway so but back to the gt so the reason the gt at the highest end one is six thousand dollars is because it's not a full carbon frame and it doesn't have electronic suspension so there's people that were confused about that now they know why some things cost more than others Uh, but the bike the gt does look good we'll have that in our field test coming up and the you know early reports from those guys sounds like they had a good time on it so um, yeah looks cool Okay, and first I have to say that it's really confusing that we're having 2022 line of bikes and we just had the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. And then if we're heading back to 2021, I think we had a review of the Noli Warden, which I think was a 2021 bike. I'm, what year is it? <laughs> yeah, okay. Product managers are probably already talking about 2025 right now. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, a lot of product managers, because of all of the uh, supply chain issues, they did three product cycles in the last nine months. A lot of them are finishing 20, 2024 and 2025 right now. Ridiculous. That's Ooh. absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, so we had a review on this Noli Warden, which was somewhere from the present or the future. Um, Dan Roberts said that he liked the confidence the bike provided on steep and tech lines, and it's all-day, all-trail ability. Cons were that it's not the best option for flat-out and rough terrain, and that it has some geometry and size and quirks to be aware of. Why did he ride a medium bike on this one? <laughs> that's what all the comments also want to know. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I felt bad for I Dan. That, yeah, I put that note in there. I was, I was looking for comment gold, and I, I found like a ton of comments asking why Dan rode a medium bike. So I thought we should, we should touch on that, Kaz. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Dan... He is a little bit taller. He's like six foot two, I think, six one, six two. And if you look at Nolly's chart, the size medium is a four seventy five point five reach, and size large is five hundred. Um, so based off the bikes that he's been riding, he felt that the the large would be a little bit too big for him. He does prefer slightly smaller. Like he's not downsizing typically, but in this case, that five hundred, um, I think, is a pretty long top tube as well. He thought that that you know you have to pick a size, and so he went with that medium. So we're coming up against the the nomenclature again here that people get stuck looking at the word, like the name of the thing, like this is a medium, whereas you got to look at those reach numbers because it's not a medium. Yeah. Is it? And guys? then people, no, it's, it's a 475. Not. And, <laughs> right. That's like a medium large now or large also, you know, like it's not, it's not your typical medium um, for most brands. 475 is still longer than almost any medium I can think of. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I usually what, ride what, a medium and that's way longer than... Yeah. spikes that I would be receiving. Kaz, what do you think of the specialized S sizing? And does that make sense? Like, should we see more of that? I mean, the funny thing, S sizing isn't anything special. They just put S instead of medium. But I think it helps people release <laughs> yeah. that in their brain a little bit because they're like, I need to ride a medium. And like, oh, no, I pick an S. So you can, you don't feel guilty like riding an S2 because you don't want to be on a small bike, but you can ride an S2. And then, yeah. so I think it kind of helps. But then it's confusing too because you have to, yeah. No more. You have to know more, which is hard yeah do you think that he yeah Yeah. do you think that it would have made the the shortcomings or the perceived shortcomings of that noli less apparent if he'd ridden the large or would it have had other issues yeah i don't think so i think that he probably might have the handling might have still been a little strange there i mean you have to remember it's Mm -hmm. a 27.5 inch bike as well with a lot of travel and he's he was kind of comparing against the modern 29 inch enduro bikes which is what he's been on so um and he, he did a good job breaking it down and, you know, the reviews fairly, um, you know, explains the pros and cons and all that. Well, I thought it's just people really hung, got hung up on that size medium as if he made a huge mistake. They were, 
for those that don't know, Dan's an actual engineer. So <laughs> there's people like, this guy doesn't even know what stack is. He's an idiot. I can never trust him again. You're like he definitely knows what stack is. He's designed bikes before. <laughs> He's also very, very fast. We need to do a geometry podcast. We've been talking about that. Yeah. Do something there. Get some people in. I'm just reminding myself. <laughs> yeah. Good. We'll put that on your <laughs> to-do list. Someone, geometry someone podcast. put that on my list. <laughs> <laughs> we need an intern for Mike bike and then we could put that yeah on exactly <laughs> uh, okay well let's talk about some prototypes we spotted a stanton titanium and carbon bike at the ard rock and juro last weekend many will know stanton for their rowdy hardtail frames this one really steps up the game and the travel what do you guys think of this tie carbon version of their switch niner fs it's so beautiful it doesn't <laughs> hold a water bottle <laughs> i'm out never mind yeah it does Why are we it all goes, the water bottle goes the water bottle goes under the top tube I clicked on that oh, article because it's gorgeous. A, yeah, uh, that's good. I thought it didn't. That's good. Good job, Santa. <laughs> Someone's double checking right now. <laughs> <laughs> we also spotted a new Hope prototype at Ard Rock, which guess what? Looks like it's joining the high pivot hype train. Hope confirmed that this is a very early prototype of a new bike that they're working on, but they don't have much to share about the bike just yet. Although we were told that we should expect it to launch before summer of next year, which would make it a 2023 Hope bike. Hope that last bike they made, I, th I it was pretty neat. And there's such an interesting backstory to that. All they make all the things, including the molds in house, all the aluminum bits on the bike as well. I think it's a an interesting backstory. And yeah, I'm excited for this thing. I wish it just wasn't another high pivot with an either, but it'll probably be awesome. So we have to talk about Ben Hildred for a minute here. He climbed a million feet on his mountain bike in 200 days. So it's impressive when people do that in a year, which is almost like double that, 365 days in case you didn't know. Uh, he tackled it in 200 days and he did it on a Santa Cruz high tower, not some like super fast cross country bike. So he averaged 5,000 feet or 1,524 meters a day for six and a half months. And the pictures of his chain ring and cassette are impressive. They were used. Anybody going to attempt this? nope <laughs> no i thought about it I, I, for like one minute i thought and i was like man five thousand for every single day is so many like i could Cats. do that for a few, a few weeks but then yeah one of our early field trips we did it in whistler and i chose dark crystal is my trail and i had to ride it twice every day for two weeks and it worked out to it was i think it was a little more than five thousand feet of climbing every day for two weeks i was fucked I was like a shell of a man and we weren't really thinking about the climbing too much. Like I wasn't trying to do it fast or anything. Not that Ben was, but I was just like getting to the top that 5,000 feet every day for six and a half months is unreal. Yeah. That's a lot. I looked at my numbers just cause you can compare like on Strava to see, and he's doing like, I feel like I ride a lot and this year I rode maybe more than normal, but he's like doubling the amount that I do which I can't ride twice as much as I do already. That'd be like, and his average rides per week is like 13 rides per week. Like it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and he has a full-time job too. Like, I know. Yeah. I, I think I read the interview that Henry did with him and it was like, I've got some forced rest in between my riding when I go to work. <laughs> so maybe they give him a chair when he's at the shop or something. You know what I found surprising is there are actually a few comments on that article where people were kind of bagging on riders who go out and do stuff like this because it it's what how did they word it they were saying basically like embrace the suffer isn't good you know like oh, you don't yeah. have to embrace anything where in my mind i'm like what are you talking about like who cares yeah. like you don't have to go out you can go out and ride once a month if you want but what this guy did is absolutely ridiculous and guess what everybody should embrace the suffer more I feel yeah. like it helps. Yeah. It builds character, gives you perspective. And Ben did exactly that. So good on you, Ben. Yeah, yeah I agree. There's no glory in being a mid-pack, middle-of-the-road rider. There's nothing wrong with it. But like the people that are pushing themselves, that's who you want to read about. Like I don't want to read yeah. about the guy that rode his local trails for an hour and a half one day. It's like, well, good job. Everybody does that. But this guy did something that not everybody does, that really nobody does. So yeah, I'm all for it. Push yourself. But that's you you also don't for. need to feel bad about yourself if, you know, you do go out for an hour and a half every day. That's also good. No, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, but, I mean did you even go get We just won't write about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you just won't be on the homepage. It's fine, though. <laughs> if you're not going to do half a million feet, don't bother writing. Finally, just ahead of the World Cup in Maribor, Rachel Atherton announced the birth of her new baby, Arna. 
She said before that she's on 39 World Cup wins right now, and Anne Carrow's record is 42. So I think we're going to see her back racing after the, you know, she's recovered from the birth of little baby Arna. Probably not Marmbor, though. Probably not, <laughs> Probably not. Maribor. <laughs> Give her like a week and a half to recover. Yeah. That would be a Would you be surprised, though, if she showed up and won? No, <laughs> no I would be surprised. You don't need your abs or like it. <laughs> I sort of don't want Ann Carroll's record to be broken, to be honest. That was uh, like, it's going to be awesome if Rachel beats it. It'll be great. Records but may same... be broken. I know, I know. Do you want Nino to get his... Is it 33 he has to get to match Julien Absalom's? You want him to beat that record, don't you? I don't need to want him to get it because he's going to get it. I know he's going to get it. So get it, Nino. If you're listening. I know you're listening, or, Nino. Or were you watching Mark Cavendish when he equaled yeah, the record in the tears. My I had watery eyes. My eyes were watery. It was amazing. That story, the shit that guy's gone through and to come back and do that after... I mean, he didn't even expect to be be back racing at that level, and he's back winning. So, yeah, I guess we'll leave that stuff to the cycling tips, guys, though. Yeah, that was pretty good. We just covered downhill cross country and road racing in one paragraph. We should probably move on to the questions now. Yeah, let's go to questions. And the first one is from Mr. Toodles. Kaz. That is a good name. (laughs) Yeah, it is a good name. He wants to know if we can incorporate a segment in reviews where we try to anonymously claim warranty, get tech support or service and like a regular customer and then report back. He's got a point actually, because when we get bikes and gear in that we're going to review, when we do have an issue with the product, we reach out to the company to get their feedback or reason or excuse or whatever. So we we can include a couple sentences of that in the review and just for some tech details. And a lot of times we get treated like gold, obviously, like they're air freighting us a new fork or wheel or whatever, and it's here 10 minutes after I hang up. That's definitely not the case for normal customers. So, Brian, is that something that's crazy out of line for us to consider, or would it be tricking companies? Uh, I'm not above that, tricking companies. <laughs> I mean, Me but it's, I think it's a huge, I think it's a huge part of what is a selling point to some degree. I don't know about the warranty thing, like trying to do a warranty claim, but I think maybe doing something about warranty in each, in each review, like just to detail what the, their official policies are would be good. I feel like this is actually one of the rare things where the internet is actually good. Like Mm -hmm. you can look at other people's experiences, you know, this is kind of like a crowdsource thing because even if we do go ahead and Mm -hmm. try to warranty something, Sometimes it depends who you get in the warranty department. Like one dude might be all just hook you up and you're all set. And then the next person is having a bad day and they just give you the runaround. So it's a difficult thing for one company to, for us to evaluate this issue. But if you look at other consumers reviews of the company that can Mm -hmm. help you get feedback, you know what I mean? Like, so if you, this is where, like what I was saying, the forums and that type of thing are good places to actually look for this type of, uh, to answer this question. Yeah. I, I think that it's, it's always the same thing about some our reviews are not, we've talked about this before in a podcast, are not great when we're talking about big picture failure rates and things because it's it's a, such a small sample size of one. We can talk a lot about, like, pretty informed about performance, but when it comes to what's going to wear out first and stuff, even though we do way longer reviews than most bike media, it's still not long enough to wear out a dropper post in a, long, in a lot of instances. And if something breaks, it's because there was a problem, not because it's a... Uh, a failure prone design and if you do have a bad experience with the company i mean definitely take the time to make a post about it i i encourage that go in the forums and share your experiences and that helps other people too and i think it also will help that company maybe not in the moment but Mm -hmm. in the long run i mean there's a issue they need to fix and they'll fix it if they get enough bad feedback from that so All right, our next question is from Feldy Bikes. This one is about trail sanitizing, Kaz. He says, when is it sanitizing and when is it restoration? He's in Colorado and a trail life cycle, he says, can go like this. It starts out smooth, often too smooth, he says, then erodes and or vegetation grows into a sweet spot and then it gets totally blown out and terrible 
Lastly, he says it gets fixed, in quotes, or people end up rerouting it by riding around it until you can't even tell where the original line was. So I guess my question is, Kaz, is there a line, I'm sure the answer is yes, between trail work that's good and trail work that's bad? I think we've all seen trails that can be over or that have been over sanitized, haven't we? Yeah, it's it's tricky because you, if you're doing maintenance, you have to fix issues, you know. So sometimes it does involve whether taking out rocks or roots or redirecting things and making everybody happy about trail maintenance is a super hard Impossible. thing. And even if you looked at what your favorite trails now looked like, you know, five years ago, in a lot of cases they probably were smoother and like more pristine, but then they do get rutted in, and you know, for better or for worse. So yeah, I don't for know. What the answer. <laughs> yeah, to a point, like I think so, but I mean. Yeah, I don't know. There, there even trails in Squamish. There's some that you probably mm-hmm. wish they were maybe not quite as blown up as they are right now. You know, like, <laughs> mid-July I mean, after 45 six days. Months. Yeah. yeah, like I bet 19th hole right now has probably got some holes it's in it. It's a little rough. <laughs> yeah. You know? So there's a balance. I think the there's a lot of just accepting of a life cycle that should happen with a lot of these things that there's a couple trails here on the shore that I like and recently have had some trail work. And I was almost, I was almost feeling like Levy with his, like, oh, this is, they've dumbed it down. Like, oh, they, they took out a a route that I always enjoyed trying to see if I could get over. And then I remember, you know, just give it two months, give it six months and it'll be, it'll be back to being something else and different. Like trails aren't, we don't have a right to static trails forever. Okay. Our next question is from, oh boy, Jabofo? Jabofa, I'm not, I don't know if I pronounced that right. But Kaz, he has a question about mountain biking being cool. He says, how long do you think mountain biking will be cool for? Skateboarding, for instance, has had fluctuating periods of popularity, and the focus on different disciplines within skateboarding has changed over time. Uh, was there ever a time when the public's interest in mountain biking waned? Definitely. And what mountain bike disciplines have come and gone, which is the next subgroup to be in the spotlight? Kaz, I think both you and I remember a time when mountain biking wasn't nearly as cool as it is now. I, I grew up in a town of 70, 80,000 people. And back in the late 90s, I bet you there were three or four mountain bikers in that town. What about you, Kaz? Yeah, same thing. But I would argue that is mountain biking even cool now? It's still a, you know, it's no. bigger and more it mainstream, cool, but it's still pretty, yeah, like it had a peak, I'd say like late nineties, early two thousands, like the XC and even downhill, everything was like, that's when the factory trucks and semi-trailers are going. And then it definitely dropped off. Games. And, yeah. So it comes and goes like all the things, but at the end of the day, it's still kind of a hard, fairly niche sport. Like it's going to get more popular cause it's awesome, but I don't know if it's really cool yet. I think that it's going to get, it'll always get more popular because everybody knows how to ride a bike. Like with skiing, you have to, and many other sports, you have to go out and learn how to ski or learn how to rock climb. But the very large majority of people learn how to ride a bike when they're a kid, which is sort of a easy entry into the sport. Yeah. It's a hard sport with a fairly easy, like low level of skill. Like learning how to skateboard, way harder than learning how to bike. It's impossible. Nobody knows that skateboard. Those are all all, all CGI. so hard. Yeah. So Jibofo, the sport has definitely seen its popularity wane as well. Just like Casimir mentioned, there was a time when it was on TV and we had huge non-mountain bike companies involved in sponsorship uh, like Volkswagen and Volvo and other companies, much more so than we see now. Uh, But it kind of cooled off. and Brian, I mean, I would argue that we're not seeing as much involvement in with non-cycling companies, but there's probably more participation than there's ever been. Is that fair? Yeah, there's more participation. I would think we're actually back to those 90s-ish levels. I think just the racing has changed. And in North America, we don't have as strong a racing culture as we did in the 90s. Um, I think the other part of his question was what, what mountain bike disciplines have kind of come and gone. And that's been an interesting one. Like we've, we've talked about a few times on the podcast, how everybody really wants to love four cross and slope style and dual slalom and these things. But those, the popularity of those things, I'm in (laughs) those, the popularity of those things has waned over the last sort of six years, five years. Yeah. 
And I feel okay, like cross country's go. gotten way cooler. What, cross country did get way that. cooler. <laughs> yeah, I used to be really dorky cross country biking, and now I mean, I think because the races are shorter, so they're easy, more easily mm-hmm. televised. That's also brought a lot of attention to cross country racing because you can actually watch the entire race now. So the format of competition and how visible it is also changes how uh, sports popularity is perceived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And with better courses, like I'm all into cross country having a comeback if they keep making techie courses, like that makes it, that's mountain biking. You know, you're trying super hard and you're challenged up and down. Like that seems, like you said, yeah, it's viewer friendly and for the riders too. If you enter XE race and it's fun and you feel like you're going to explode your lungs and heart and then it's good. Do you guys care how cool mountain biking is? No, definitely not. I wish it wasn't as cool as it is now. Same. Yeah. I know this, this is, is not a popular, nice thing to say, but like I miss the times when it was like this even dorkier niche, more core sport that almost nobody did. I, I do miss those times. Those are good times. It's my sport. Go away. <laughs> yeah. Get off my lawn. <laughs> Get off my, my 30 my... foot high skinny. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to our last question. This one is from I Live on Nitro. And this one is relevant because we were just having a bit of an argument a couple days ago in the Slack channel about enduro bike weights. What makes sense? What's out of line? What's really light? So I Live on Nitro. His comment says, I'll submit the obviously descending opinion. Y'all need to set higher expectations for lowering bike weight. 30 pound enduro bikes are entirely possible. Cass? I'm with him. Yeah, like I took Henry ran a poll last week, a week before, where he just kind of picked, you were supposed to pick what you thought your ideal bike weights were. And and his suggestions or what he thought the reasonable ones were like a couple pounds off of what I thought, because I kind of want bikes to get lighter again. I don't like, they don't need to be heavy. You know, there is, if you can make them as strong um, and durable and still light, that seems pretty good to me. I think you're not allowed to have all three of those things though, but. I think the whole enduro bike category is pretty big. So we have that Norco range. And I think that that high pivot Norco range weighs 37 pounds. Um, you put double down tires on the front and back of that thing. Like it's, I know it's not a downhill bike, Kaz, but it's also like almost a freaking downhill bike, you know? Whereas the new We Are One is also an enduro bike. It's got a bit less travel, but it's definitely still an enduro bike. And that thing weighs, was it like 31 pounds or something like that? So there's a this pretty wide spectrum. And if you're racing in EWS, you're definitely going to be leaning more towards that 37-pound Norco range with double-down tires and inserts and all those things. I mean, but then there's the, I tested that Scott Gambler like two years ago, I think. And that was 34 pounds, I think. 34, 35 pounds. And that's a downhill bike with a dual crown fork. So I feel like there's a middle ground here we could get to where I don't think enduro bikes need yeah. to be 37 pounds and you're not going to have them 25 pounds. But in that like 30 pound range, it, it, the light 30s, that seems like really comfortable, nice weight to shoot for. But, you know, we'll see. People get really hung up on total bike weight, but really the bike companies can only uh, control the the frame weight. And then the parts you put on it are a function of what you're trying to do with the bike. You, anybody, a lot of boat anchor bikes out there get feel light on the sales floor because they've put paper thin tires on them and you tried to game the system that way. And it's just like, ah, uh, I don't know. The next Grim Donut has carbon Shh, wheels. Don't tell them yet. <laughs> it has carbon wheels because it's a bit heavy, <laughs> you know, not because we a are. A bit? <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's not that bad. It's not, it's not no. as bad as the first one. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I've been riding a, an Ibis Enduro with, I was testing those Roval and uh, reserve wheels. So I put those on with some light tires and lighter rotors. My bike was 30 pounds. And then I put on like more Enduro wheels and a double down tire. And ex- yeah, and my bike went up to 34 pounds. So like the spec differences, you know, that's just tires and wheels, you know, so it's pretty huge. When you're on the trail riding that bike, Sarah, with those different wheels on, we don't need to get crazy into the details, but there's definitely a difference that you can feel, eh? Oh, yeah. Like the first, <laughs> I was like, wow, this is so heavy on the climb when I changed the wheels. So the first, you know, 30 minutes of the ride, I spent complaining about how heavy my bike was. And, you know, I didn't feel that great on the climb. And then the first like 10 seconds of the descent, I was like, yeah, I don't think I'll be riding those little cross-country wheels on this bike anymore. <laughs> like it was, yeah, big, big difference for, yeah, having the appropriate tires and wheels for the riding that I was doing. 
Now you should try to put those big tires on those light wheels and see what you think. That's your next task. Okay, that sounds fun. That's the combo, Kaz. That is the combo. That's That's what I got. All right. It sounds like I Live on Nitro believes that companies should start spending more money on making lighter enduro bikes. Which brings us to today's chat about what we think mountain bike brands are wasting their resources on. So we should probably define waste before we get too deep into this, though, because I don't think it's an actual waste to buy expensive, fancy things that you just plain want, even if it doesn't help you in any way. I'd be a hypocrite if I said the opposite, which makes it hard to blame any company for making those expensive, fancy things. But for today's podcast, that's exactly what waste is going to mean. Things that offer a questionable return on investment, especially if they cost a lot of money. So Kaz, I'm going to start with a big example that you might agree with, you might not. Um, This one was actually suggested to me by a friend of mine a few days ago. Bike redesigns that aren't needed and only happen because of production cycles and because the competition is also making new bikes. So now everybody has to make new bikes all the time. And Kaz, don't get me wrong. I think we all love seeing new bikes, don't we? But sometimes it just seems like a little over the top. Like your new enduro bike just came out a week ago. Why is there a new one? I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I think so. But then it's also, it usually seems like these days, everyone's kind of on that three-year cycle, right? Doesn't it seem kind of mm-hmm. typical? It's a three years. Every once in a while, someone comes out quicker. But, but it's, uh, I mean, at the end of three years, I don't know, Brian, you, know, you might know better, but like, do they need to revisit the molds and like make new things? Like re, do things need to be changed anyway? So you might as well give it that little extra slacker. Um, molds do wear out but that's not what people are doing they're not just going oh we need to make new molds therefore let's we may as well redesign the bike um i just don't i i want to challenge levy a little bit on this in terms of waste like if it makes the if it sells more bikes it's not a waste of money for the company really they exist to make money um and and it generally makes better bikes Yeah, I'm not saying that the bikes aren't better sometimes, but a lot of times we see redesigns and the bike is like a couple percent better. And really, the redesign was only made so that the bike looks like their other new bikes a lot of times. Like Mm -hmm. the existing thing isn't bad. It's not bad. It's great, actually. Um, And there's so much talk in our industry about wasting uh, cardboard packaging products and carbon fiber too. And then we have all these new carbon bikes coming out that require new packaging and all that stuff just gets thrown into the ocean in the dolphin breeding grounds. I know it. <laughs> what do you think they're doing? Redesigning cardboard boxes? They all come in the same cardboard box, Levy. Like, it's the same. <laughs> like, your old bike and your new bike. Not like, we need I don't know. Some of those e-bike boxes are so big. <laughs> That's, I, mean, I like the, Mike, yeah, Mike Levy, noted environmentalist Mike Levy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if cardboard is being I, wasted on new designs. I just think that... I guess my point is a lot of these companies aren't designing and releasing new bikes because the bike is better. They're designing and releasing new bikes because they have to, because their competition did that. I guess that's what I'm saying. I guess. How do you solve that? (laughs) I riled everybody up. (laughs) (laughs) But also I talked to like a product manager or an engineer at some point and they said, by the time the bike actually comes out, like that's like two years ago for us and we're already working on the next thing. So they're kind of, by the, by the time the consumer can actually get the bike, it's old news for the product manager and the engineers. They're already Maybe working they should on take some the next off. thing. Slow down, relax. <laughs> like the bikes are really good. We, we don't need new bikes all the time. You, who, you, this person, you have a 2020 something or other that cost you $6,500. It's made of carbon. You don't need the new 2021 thing. Just don't buy it. Okay, but you're trying to tell companies to sell less bikes. That seems silly. And also for like us to have less jobs. So 
I'm not, I'm not, it might be a waste for a consumer. I think consumers are as to blame as anybody on like needing the new, new, new all the time. Like, oh, my 2020 bike is no good anymore because there's a 2022. Like that, uh, that. Because I think I've also heard about a bell curve. Like in the first year Mm -hmm. that a bike is new, that's when they sell the most. And then they sell a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less. And then they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, guess Mm -hmm. it's time to change the model. And, you know. Yeah. That's not a waste of money at all. I guess, I guess maybe I just feel a little i don't know like we get to see a lot more of these bikes being developed and we get the backstory for a lot of them and Mm -hmm. we're riding all of them and i mean they all work they do all work great nowadays they do so well one person sometimes i ride these new bikes and i'm like ah it's not that much better than the other one i don't know (laughs) but you even asked me you asked me earlier before we start recording when's the last time i was on something that wasn't better than whatever before i'll flip that to you like when's the last bike you rode and was like oh the previous one was better mm, that's a good question because you, you do have me there <laughs> yeah they're usually better <laughs> they are they are usually better yeah i think the opposite i think that the there's a huge waste in the huge product jumps every three years like when brands throw out a perfectly good design and they do something completely revolutionary and new and then six months later, a year later, have to do an update to that because they didn't know what they didn't know. And that bike has some problems. Um, well, I, I, like, I have no issue with a bike brand making a small head tube adjustment or kinematic change or whatever. I was talking to somebody else about this before the podcast and they were, they totally disagreed. They said it was a huge waste of money to do a new mold or whatever to just to change a head tube angle or it's like, ugh, like that's so frustrating to spend money on that. And I, I see that from a brand perspective, but I actually think that that's good because I think it saves you money on warranty. I think it saves you money on all of that design time that wasn't necessary. If you just wanted to have a bike that pedaled a little better, you can tweak your existing design, you know. Yeah, it costs money for a new mold, but you don't have all the other things associated with it. All right. I, th- I think it's fair to say that I lost this one. <laughs> 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 can I, can I, I'm going to say my next one. This one might rile some people up. I think that sometimes bike companies and brands waste money on racing. I said it. I like it. <laughs> I think you're. I think you're right. No, I, I agree. But I think it's not not so much the. I think it's good to have athletes, fast athletes, on your team. But I think some companies aren't using those athletes to their fullest potential, and some of those athletes aren't probably delivering what they should. Like you have someone, and they just go race and get mid pack, and that's all you ever see. I don't think the company is getting a return there. Yeah. Much much like other sports, mountain bike racing sees like the top handful of riders earn a whack load of money, all the money. And the other people earn enough to get by maybe if they sell their frames at the end of the year. So my thinking is that if these companies, instead of spending X amount of money to have their top five World Cup downhiller guy and a couple other people that we never see or hear of, why don't they use that money for either bike development or maybe advocacy or sanitizing trails, <laughs> all that trail work I complained about? I don't know. I just feel like there are better places you could spend that money. Brian, question for you. You have a mountain bike team. Your company has a mountain bike team. It's got three or four riders. One of them wins a World Cup every now and then. Is that like a, is that like a million dollar program? What is that? How much? Oh, that there cost, are a lot of there are a lot of million dollar racing programs out there. Um, I don't. I think some of them get by on a on a shoestring as well. And some. I think that's what makes racing so cool to me, especially downhill racing, because you're not just going out and spending the most money to buy the best engine, um, or to convincing the the most expensive person you can to come over from road racing. You know. Um, it's you the coolest stories are when somebody and a talent gets identified by a brand and they spend time and money you know developing that rider through through the junior ranks and then you know they come into elite have a a difficult first season or whatever and then oh all the all of a sudden they have success that to me is such a cool story and that person gets associated with the brand and and that success story becomes like something that i associate with that brand um for me, I think it really comes down to the B riders versus the A and the C riders. I, it's all mercenary, right? Like we're, 
we're talking about people's livelihoods here and it, I'm not suggesting people should just flick all their athletes, but from a pure ROI, like what sells the most bikes, I feel like there are some, the A riders sell bikes, the, your superstar riders absolutely move the needle. Um, I, I think it falls off pretty quickly though. And I think a lot of those dollars would be, if you're just talking about selling more bikes, would be better spent on other on regional advocacy on even just like national ambassador level deals um versus versus like cool you got 56th of the world cup like that doesn't that hasn't ever sold a single bike yeah you have one on your list brian and this 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 is a good segue here since we're talking about riders and racers what about free riders versus racers i know that you mm. you had mentioned free riders on your list of places where companies possibly waste some some resources and money. But I would argue that a free rider, he's not traveling the world, he's probably getting paid less than like a top 10 World Cup downhiller. Isn't that a less expensive way to reach a whole bunch of people? If we're talking about bike brands, remember that bike brands don't necessarily lose money on their factory teams. A lot of the other sponsors of those teams are paying to be on the on the bike or on the on the athletes so they're like resellers of of athletes um and so that cost and sometimes it's just a a a lot of management and headaches is the cost of your of your factory team sometimes it costs a lot of money too but the a budget doesn't necessarily mean that you're a million dollar budget might not mean that you bike brand are losing a million dollars you're just lighting that money on fire whereas a lot of uh, free ride athletes are on frame deals and sort of independent contractor deals where you just send them a frame and 40K and off you go. I don't think that that's bad. I think that that's good. And I think a lot of free riders absolutely move the needle and, and do a lot. It's the ones that I question are we see some that don't do anything. I think I mentioned this on an earlier podcast because it was a pandemic year. We were kind of wondering like, what all the free riders have been doing, like, you know, assuming the restrictions or whatever have been lifted, there's still like radio silence from a lot of these guys who their whole livelihood is basically making some edit. That's like each year they're expected to deliver one or two edits and nothing was happening. So I think as a company, you want to make sure that this person you're paying money to is promoting the brand in the way that you want. Like I, I've heard stories of a, a, a specific free rider that his contract said he had to deliver a certain number of edits each year. And then towards the end of the year, he just sent his GoPros to the, like the marketing guy and I was like, here's my footage, turn it into something. So it's just how much GoPros. He just mailed yeah. actual <laughs> just GoPros. Mailed back. Like, yeah. I mean, it might probably the card or whatever, but either way, it was still just like, here's all just raw data, make something. And that's like, that's not what we paid you for. So I think as a company, you just have to be careful that you don't get lured in by this. Oh, this person has a good rampage event. They're going to be great for a company. And then I was saying like, Oh wait, no, they're actually just sitting around doing nothing. I mean, you know, there's lots of things we don't see. We don't see the injuries behind the scenes. Lots of these things are, it, they're putting their lives on the line. I don't think we should diminish any of that. Being a free rider is not as glorious as it looks like, but there are, there are some people that are incredibly hard working out there, free riding or free racing that you, you know, they're putting themselves out there. It was really interesting to see during the pandemic who kind of took it as an opportunity and who took it as an excuse. Some of the other places that we've talked about companies wasting money Let's talk about travel, which sort of brings us into press camps, Kaz. And I know that's a topic that you and I like to harp on sometimes. Yeah, I, this is on my list too. I think that a lot of times companies have a new new bike or something coming out. They want to promote it in the best way they can. So like, we're going to do a big extravagant launch. We're going to fly all these journalists or we're going to fly all these dealers to this place and just have a big thing. And it's going to be amazing. But at the end of the day the output of that, you know, like the articles that are generated, they're the same as if they sent the bike or did smaller scale operations and saved a whole bunch of money that could go to, like you said, trail advocacy or sponsoring some grassroots riders or something like that. So what's the weirdest without naming names, what's the weirdest hmm. press launch that you've gone to? I have, I have a good one. One time I flew from Vancouver to Italy to ride a new rear shock which is difficult enough to test, you know, leverage hides a lot of things. And this new so-called new rear shock, do you know what was new about it? It had a top out spring, a different top out spring. So I flew to Italy basically 
to test a top boat spring. It worked really well. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but that was one of the that was one of the stranger ones. And the trip was great overall. We were in uh, we were in Italy, a really neat part of Italy. But it seemed a little crazy, didn't it? Did the brand? Do you think the brand had a better overall outcome because they spent all the money to get so many people to the place? Well, what they did get is sort of some guaranteed content or stories. So you've they've rounded up a handful of media people. They've got them in one place. They could share all the information. Uh, they expect a story out of it for sure. Um, and I think we all we all did a story, an update story. Um, and they control the photos and stuff. They had well. just sent me that shock. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, but if they had just sent me that shock, yeah. To be honest with you, I. It might have got a little blurb. It definitely wouldn't have got the same in-depth technical treatment. Yeah. So you just wrecked your own. You they just got me. Your own they point. got me. Yeah. You just wrecked your own point. They was perfectly. No, I, no it, I, it made all the sense in the world for them. That, that wasn't a waste. They got what they. Yeah. Yeah, was I know, spend. but it was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> just because it was dumb doesn't you were the sucker that yeah. they wanted you to be <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think that we don't want i think it is helpful uh you know for us to travel to visit the factories or to visit the uh the headquarters of these companies and see the de- behind the scenes stuff and i think that just going over the top with the launches is a, a cost savings measure that you can take and we'll still get you can still have all the cool behind the scenes stuff without just like flying people to i don't know uzbekistan for some little bit of single track i like anything that's really designed to be a brand experience is hurts me whereas you've i you know there's some brands that have done like back-to-back testing at launches or invited us to go and actually see the manufacturing things that are going to actually help inform what we write about that that has value that's great but just traveling somewhere for a saddle or something is like ugh, not good yeah, we should we should do a podcast on press camps at one point soon. Yeah, talk about Just, press camps, what what it's like to go to a press camp, a good press camp, a bad press camp, some of our not so good press camp experiences, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I got yeah. food poisoning in Patagonia once. That wasn't very good. <laughs> that sounds you got a John. sweet brand brand experience though a plus brand experience <laughs> yeah i was like pushing my bike up a hill having it with a fever and just puking like i'll be fine guys this great this bike is great <laughs> Margo lives tomorrow had, you're uh, gonna get that done on the plane right <laughs> yeah i got one about brian there embargo oh you yeah, sorry room. sorry yeah that was that's a very good story let's save that one for the press camp podcast <laughs> press camp, though. that's sure. an amazing okay. story yeah yeah i guess I'm, i want to go on top of this as well without dealer launches. They're another thing I think some companies could save money for. I've seen how they go. I've had a little bit of like behind the scenes watching that where they fly all the dealers in, whether that's to, you know, usually where the company's located. And then they, you know, they're whining and dining. I'm taking them out for parties and doing all this stuff. And to get people are just excited because they're getting their food paid for and they're riding all these new bikes. But at the end of the day, I still feel like it's a big spend. You're paying all the airfare and stuff for these. And, you know, you're trying to get them to buy the bikes, the, the dealers to buy the bikes to sell to the consumers. But I feel like smaller scale stuff would accomplish the same thing, especially with the day of the internet and Zoom meetings. You know, like the bike shop still is going to sell your bike if it's if it's good. So I don't think you always have to go so over the top and just jump dump all that marketing money into these like just drunken, goofy events. <laughs> yeah, and I think this year a lot of those events were all canceled. So I wonder if they'll actually come back because yeah, those are you know you talk about a press launch being expensive. You're flying ten journalists maybe to somewhere but for a dealer event you know you'll have like 100 or 200 people come to a location and then you'll have all the demo bikes because you need to have enough bikes for all of them to to try them all and then you know wine and dine and put them up in hotel and those events must be like yeah really expensive they, definitely they are very expensive brian you've got a good one on your list here warranty claims why and how the heck do warranty claims cost companies money that they could otherwise be saving well i think we talked earlier about how we should be evaluating people's warranty process and warranty um offers but warranties cost money and it's up it's the cost of of a new frame that that has money out of your pocket today as a brand i'm not saying the brands shouldn't offer really robust good warranties what I'm saying is that brands should maybe consider launching new bikes 100 grams heavier than 
with the you know with the layout let's the first time we launch these bikes it's brand new 2022 bike hey guess what it's a 3000 gram enduro bike rather than a 2700 gram enduro bike to start it's people will buy it because it's new yeah but what but then Casimir and i are going to complain about the weight and the review and they, they don't want that people will buy it because it's new and it, you have to be reasonable in your weight and whatever else but you don't have to go quite as crazy on weight especially on a new design to start like i think it's weird that brands always launch a bike and then when they fix it a year and a half later it gets heavier it's like why don't you launch the heavy one and then in because people will buy it because it's new and then in a year and a half you can launch a slightly lighter one and because you know what you know about the bike now and then people will buy it again because it's new and you won't have had all those warranty claims in between the two it's not a terrible strategy yeah, that actually sounds reasonable. You might have a point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think any of these companies though, like a company like Specialized who in the past couple of years has very obviously put a ton of effort into making a bunch of new really freaking light carbon frames. I mean, they're counting they're counting single grams with these things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be real hard to ask a company like that to just care a little less about how much the final product weighs I'm, I'm not saying that they should care a little less about what the final product weighs but that's a good example that enduro that is incredibly light i think it's like 2750 or something with shock um for the s-works version well it got heavier in year two because they got rid of the of the carbon link because they were breaking yeah that is a good example you know and if they'd come with started with the heavy link and then done in year two, an upgraded lighter link that was somewhere in between the two in weight, or I don't know, magnesium or whatever else, then cool, they would have gotten a, a second pop. It's not like the people yeah. wouldn't have bought the new Enduro without, you know, if it was 50 grams heavier. Brian, what about unnecessary adjustments on the bike? We see a lot of bikes come with geometry flip chips that change the head angle by like a third of a degree and the bottom bracket by a few millimeters. Do those cost the company money to develop? They do. They have to, right? And I don't like, I'm not a huge fan of them. I think we've talked about that before. I think you should just choose the right geometry or the right thing. But I also don't know if it's something that I would call a waste because it makes some bikes more useful for more people. And more than that, it's the company obviously has done their homework and feels strongly that it's uh it's a selling feature it lets them sell more bikes to more people so i don't yeah i don't i wouldn't say that i think that that's necessarily waste i might not love it i'd rather have a bike that's just right but Mm -hmm. um but i don't know i don't know if that really fits for me as a waste yeah fair enough sarah has a good waste example though greta thunberg over here (laughs) doesn't like how much packaging and how much paper comes with new bikes? Can you can you explain your and specifically? I, I know it's a legal requirement because otherwise companies, I'm sure, wouldn't do this. But there's got to be a better way to do it than send every single bike with like reflectors and manuals printed in 56 different languages. So they're you know about six inches thick, and you know that's a lot of paper. And no one is going to put those reflectors on their high end mountain bike. So that's like. Hopefully, ending up in a recycling bin. That would bin, be illegal, Sarah. Landfill. That would be. Remember, they yeah, used to send out like DVDs too. Now, at least, like the stuff yeah. that was on DVDs seems to be live on their website, some people's websites. But yeah, I'm just always so sad. And sometimes you get really terrible pedals. Yeah, those are all just like legal requirements. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it's too bad. I know, but it's I'm just sure so that that... sad. We can like lobby the bells, government. Some of them. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Common sells come with bells, I think. I think there might be a French rule that you have to sell it with a bell. I like that. <laughs> I like that, too. That's that's pleasant. The I, I still think you can say all of those printing costs uh, and all of the and just the waste uh, that could go away there. You don't need to have a full a full manual in there. You can do it with a with a QR code or a URL. And then when you realize that you messed something up in the manual, you can change it on the site. 
Yeah, if restaurants are getting away with going away from menus, they all QR codes now, which I don't like that, but still, it makes more sense for bikes. Well, because then I, I think the they menu. can track you, like once you use the QR code. I don't know. I was reading about this. I got a little bit like creeped out. By, Sorry like, for what? Yeah, for it using the QR your, code. Your vaccine, and then yeah, <laughs> <laughs> restaurant don't ask everything the, I think about me. The microchip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you hey. just blink twice, you can see the menu in your brain. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you have something on your list that sort of goes hand in hand, kind of, with my example of there being just too many bikes out there. You say, you believe, that you think some brands get carried away by offering too many bike choices. Can you explain explain yourself? Yeah, so you'll get, you know, they'll launch this best bike ever, and you'll have to choose between do you want a 29er version? Do you want a mullet version? Do you want a 27.5 version? And it's all on the same bike. Or a lineup for a brand will have, you know, the best bike ever. And it's you can choose between the 130 or the 140 or the 150 millimeters of travel. And, you know, people say they want all of these choices. But at a certain point, there's just too many choice. And then that leads to increased product management costs, stocking costs, warranty costs. And then Brian was mentioning earlier, there's less buying power because you're spreading the um, the products that you're buying across so many SKUs that you're not buying 100 derailers. You're buying 10 for each one of those different bikes. Yeah, exactly. If you, if you split and you have a, a Shimano version and a SRAM version of a, at, a, at a price point, you aren't getting the same discount from those either of those brands as if you'd just gone with one of them. So you're kind of making all the people happy, but at the same time, mm-hmm. I get overwhelmed yeah. by all that choice. And then also managing all that choice also becomes pretty messy and uh, time-consuming for the, the brands that are offering you all the choice. So Brian, you've no doubt heard of Casimir and I's new consulting firm, mm-hmm. Mike Bike. We're specializing in all sorts of things. Any Anything that any bike companies need done really will decide for you, especially when it comes to marketing. You know, any brands, if you have marketing decisions, come to Casimir and I, and we'll tell you which way to go. Now, marketing, though, Brian, is something that you have on your list. So let's, let's hear how you think companies waste money on marketing. <laughs> well, on, on marketing agencies specifically, I actually think... I think this works out well. Um, I think that there are some great smaller bike focused agencies like Mike bike, obviously, uh, obviously. that do great, that do great work. Um, and can be a really good option for smaller to smaller to medium sized bike brands where they don't have enough money to have three layers of brand management or something. And they just need somebody to get some stuff done. I, Big, big, especially outside of industry, marketing agencies come in and do a lot of things and, oh my God, it costs so much money. There are, you know, you spend, you want to launch a new bike, you spend $100,000 in fees, you have 100 meetings with every stakeholder in the business and you come out the other side with, (laughs) oh, here's our great new strap line for our campaign. It's game changing, quiver killing. And it's just... it's like, okay, great. We just lit a hundred grand on fire. Um, Mike Bike will do know, it for 80 grand if you're listening out there. <laughs> you know, and, and honestly, it, you know, 90% of that big agency work is just covering a marketing person's ass because they have a budget to spend and they don't know what to do with it. And the agency does a good job of managing all the communication within the company to then get everybody to be okay with the fact that the strap line is quiver killing or something. But it doesn't actually do anything if it doesn't actually sell bikes just makes everybody feel okay <laughs> yeah on that marketing thing too we we're talking about big spans i think the last couple of years we've seen some ridiculous product launch videos that i know probably cost like six figures maybe for some of them i just don't know if that's worth it like what they're why funny. About it now <laughs> yeah we're talking about it now so it probably was I guess. I just wonder if you could have accomplished that for $50,000 and then had 50 grand to sponsor an athlete or to pay to do something. It's probably an e-biker. How, <laughs> how much do you think they had to pay Christopher Walken to be in the the YT video? Do you, do you think he did that out of the goodness of his heart or like, is he a mountain biker? He's way into it. He's like, oh guys, I'd love to be in a video. I'll do it for free. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. I bet his dairy. It's not cheap. I don't know. You know, like, yeah, we are talking about it. So it did something, but 
I feel like maybe some balance. I don't know if that's the way I want to see companies go to like who can make the most extravagant launch video. I think that YT actually is an interesting thing. I think they do an excellent job of marketing. And I actually think they did a pretty cool, not not so much with those videos, but with like their racing thing. I don't necessarily see anything wrong with them. Like when they parted ways with Aaron Gwynn, for example, you know, they brought in a super mega star, paid him for a couple of years to prove the bike out. And then the value equation for them changed. Like they, they it's like, yeah, we've, we proved that now we're going to do something else. And I don't, I don't necessarily see anything wrong with that. And in terms of their marketing videos, I think they've had different levels of success with different videos. Some of them I think, I think are better than others, but in terms of return on investment and moving bikes, I'm not sure I would say that any of those were a bad spend. A lot, it was a lot of money. And, but I, yeah, I don't know if it sold less bikes. Because of it. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's just hard for me to wrap my brain around that much money, but I'm not in that position. So if I had that budget and I could afford Chris for walking, I guess I would probably buy, I'd pay for him to be on the shoot. Like We're going to go to comment gold before we wrap this podcast up. There's only one. It's a long one. This is from JTG. This is on Henry Quinney's satirical article. That's a hard one to say about mountain bike things that didn't happen. He had a little blurb in there about some tandem riding. And JTG says, Okay, funny thing about tandems and relationships. The shop I work at had a long-time customer who had a long-term girlfriend. He raced 24-hour hour endurance events, really fit, and she was a strong rider too, but not quite that strong. Anyway, one winter, they flew down to Southern California for a week-long tandem bike trip. Dun, dun, dun. Despite both being experienced cyclists, they never had ridden a tandem before. So they get down there, they rode a single day, <laughs> and the next day she's on a plane back to Canada. Relationship over. Our customer being a champ, apparently he rode the tandem on the entire tour solo and then flew back home. I like it. It takes a special kind of couple to ride a tandem <laughs> bike together, he says. And then underneath, Fab Wizard replies... Whichever way your relationship is going, a tandem will get it there faster. <laughs> He's definitely right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is it for episode 75, where we think mountain bike brands are wasting their money. Hit us in the comments below. Let us know what you think. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and give it a good rating so I get to keep doing this show. And we'll see you next episode. Bye.